If you're newer visiting, we want to welcome you. I mean, we want to welcome all of you. Uh, but my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're not a Christian, too, we're glad you're here. Uh, today is the third Sunday of the month, so we have something called Connections and Coffee. Or maybe it's Coffee and Connections, I forget. But it's you get the picture. It's the same thing either way. Um, but we have a pastor or a couple of pastors back uh, who will be out kind of in an area out there. There'll be a sign. If you have any questions about the message or about Christianity or church or you just want to talk to somebody, you want free coffee, uh, that'll be available for you. So check it out. Um, but anyway, we're glad you're here. Um, today's an interesting day to visit if you are visiting because we've been in a series, uh, a preaching series through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, for over two years now, and we're finishing today. Okay, so something that's been in the works for many months is finishing. It's all culminating in the sermon today. No pressure for me. Um, but it's always bittersweet, I think, for us to finish one of these um, expositional journeys, I guess you could say, especially after so long. I don't think we've done anything this long except for the Gospel of Matthew, which took us a little over two years, too. Um, so we've been in these books with these people uh, kind of in these narratives for a while, and it shaped us um, feels kind of sad to say goodbye, uh, but I think it is a good time. Uh, I think it's time that we move on to something else. The Bible is so rich. There's so much for us in the text, and we want to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul talked about in the book of Acts. So if we're going to do that, we can't spend 40 years in First and Second Samuel. So we're going to hopefully take the lessons that we learned uh, from this. Hopefully we're changed because of what we learned through this these books through these texts, uh, and then we'll move on to something else. And what we have next, uh, I think will hopefully it'll excite you 50% of how excited I am. I feel like that's a pretty realistic bar. Hopefully maybe it's a little optimistic, uh, but I feel like the next book we're doing might in fact be the craziest book in the Bible. So I think you'll be shocked when you read it. Um, but I'll let you know in a little bit. I'm going to give you a break, keep that suspense going, building in your mind. I know for the next like three weeks, that's the only thing you're going to think about. What's the next book going to be? I'll tell you soon. Anyway, 2 Samuel 24, don't want to steal the thunder of this book. 2 Samuel 24, the final chapter in the books of Samuel. And what we're going to do is we're going to read it as we go along. Okay, I want the story to kind of unfold as we get into it. So let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, as we sang, no power of hell, no scheme of man can do anything. God can get in the way at all of your plan, of your goodness, of what you want to accomplish. God, we know you are sovereign over everything, that you you have ordained the, the end and the beginning. So we rest in that. God, we know that you know our futures. We know that you hold our lives in your hand. We know that you wanted us to be here right now to hear from your word, from 2 Samuel 24. So God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. God, I ask that you would take our hearts and that you would mold them and shape them and fashion them more into the likeness and image of Christ. God, I pray for conviction. I pray for salvation this afternoon. And God, we know that you have the ability, God, you have the power to make all of that possible. 
So God, we look to your goodness. God, we know you are completely just, but we also know, God, that you are overflowing with compassion and mercy and grace for the sinner. So we rest in that. God, will you speak through your word this afternoon? Would you use this time? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever escaped the consequences of your actions? Maybe you made a terrible choice, but then for some reason or another, nothing happened. You didn't face any backlash. There was no punishment, no fallout, no bad consequences at all. This idea is at the heart of Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. If you've read it before, The Picture of Dorian Gray. In this book, Dorian Gray is a young man who is obsessed with youth and beauty. And he has this conversation with an older aristocrat named Lord Henry Wotton. And he's an arrogant and hedonistic kind of guy. And he tells Dorian Gray these famous lines. He says, he says, the gods give us everything, but they take it back. They do it very slowly so we don't notice. They give us youth, they give us beauty, they give us all these things, but as time goes on, they fade away. And after they talk, Gray wishes that somehow he could escape this. He recognizes the inevitability of losing his beauty, of facing the consequences for his actions, of growing old, of making bad choices. So he wishes kind of into the, the either, he wishes that this wouldn't happen to him. And somehow or another in the book, his wish comes true. It's his portrait, his picture that ages instead of him. And every bad choice that he makes, the consequences are painted across the picture and not in his own face. And so Dorian Gray descends into this life of hedonism and evil. He becomes known for his wild partying and love affairs, but that's only the start. He tests his limits. Okay, he starts betraying his friends on a whim. There's this one woman who loves him, the, the one person in the world who actually cares about him, and he breaks her heart. And then after this, he even kills his friend, his friend Basil, who painted the portrait in the first place in a fit of rage. As he experiments with every vice imaginable, his portrait indeed grows more hideous and grotesque. And you can see the literal consequences painted on that picture. But Dorian Gray himself remains young and spotless. He bears no consequences for any of his actions. Now, Ecclesiastes 7.15, it says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What Solomon is saying here in Ecclesiastes is he's seen everything, and people often do not get what they deserve. Perhaps you know someone just like this. They break all the rules, or they eat terribly, but they're super fit. Nothing seems to phase them or affect them. Well, you know someone else who works super hard all the time and yet can't catch a break. This is the reality of life, and it's a little bit disturbing, right? Just a little bit. And yet, let's ask the bigger question as we start to get into this text this afternoon. What is it? that we deserve. What do we actually deserve? This question looms over the many stories we read in scripture. For example, 
God warns Adam that there is one tree in the midst of the garden of which you cannot eat. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's what God says. And guess what Adam and Eve do? They eat of the fruit of the tree. And while they don't drop dead on the spot, death is introduced into the world. Their mortal doomsday clocks start ticking and they are exiled from the garden of Eden and also exiled from the presence of God. And some people ask when they kind of analyze this, just for fruit? I mean, they didn't kill anybody. They just ate some fruit from a tree. You're going to get all this punishment for that? But the question is, what did God say? Or how about this? What about the random guy in Numbers 15? I know you guys all memorize Numbers 15. It's your favorite chapter in the Bible. Do you remember the random guy who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath? And they caught him doing it. And they remembered what God said, Exodus 31, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So what happened to the guy who was just picking up some sticks on the ground? He was put to death. And some people ask, just for picking up sticks, just for that, You're going to be punished in this way. But what did God say? It's not an easy question to ask, what do we deserve? It's not an easy question to get into the Bible and start to dig into it and and see what the Bible has to say about something like that. It's why we're shocked when God doesn't allow Moses into the promised land after everything he went through. And it's just because Moses struck a rock in anger instead of talking to it. It's unsettling to us when we read in the book of Acts that Ananias and Sapphira, what they do is they sell some stuff, they give the money to the church, but they don't give all of it. They lie. And they're struck down dead. They still gave money. They just lied about how much they were struck down dead. It's shocking. It's unsettling. And it's because we know that God is gracious, he's merciful, he's kind. We know that his love reaches to the heavens. That's Psalm 36. We know that he is, in fact, love itself, 1 John 4. And yet, what do we do with all these examples? See, it's tough, right? We know our theology. We know God is good. We pray to God as our Father. We sing about his mercy. But at the same time, we read all these stories in the Bible, and we're like, seems kind of harsh, What do we do with all of these times where God gave people severe punishment? What do we do with what God has said? What do we deserve? See, today, as we end this series through these two incredible books, really just one book in the original Hebrew, we end with one of the stranger passages in the entire narrative. It's interesting. It's different. It's not exactly what we've seen so far. And what actually happens in this story is never fully explained. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of left to mystery. Only God knows. We're not allowed to know. All we're told is that David, he does something and it's wrong. In some way, he's punished for it. And then God relents for some reason. And it's somewhat disturbing, somewhat unsettling that God and Israel would be punished so severely, it seems, in this text for such a seemingly small, uh, small infraction. What David does is he counts the people. He gives a census. Wouldn't seem like the worst thing he ever did, but we'll get into it.
And this is the perfect passage to close with, I think. Um, even though it's different, even though it's a little strange, because there's something massively important to learn here about who God is as we consider the real shortcomings, but also the true greatness of the king he chose as we look at David's life and his reign one final time. These last four chapters of Second Samuel, real quick, just as a reminder, are not the chronological end to the story, but a summary of the kingdom under David and evaluation of his tenure. Each of these passages was handpicked to give an overall view of how he did. And so this passage was picked to be the last one. Okay, it's not the very end of his life or his reign, but it's the end of the story for us. And this passage, which deals with the failure of David this time, Okay, remember, we looked at the failure of Saul a little earlier, the failure of David. It's going to teach us something really important about how we should view the entire thing. So let's get into it. First point. And as we've done throughout most of this series, we'll look at this passage in three parts under three headings. First point, the census. That's what happens. He, he gives the census, the census, which is about the choice that we're always given about who to trust. Verse 1. Let's look at this actual text here. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Okay, right away, we're just thrown into it. It's kind of like one of those movies where it starts in the action. It's like a battle is already going underway. We're told that God is angry with Israel. We're not told why. Now, interesting, we are told that this is happening again though. And this immediately calls to mind the first passage in all these summary evaluation epilogue passages back in first Samuel, uh, second Samuel 21. We saw this a few weeks ago. Out of all the summary passages, it started with this passage where Saul messed up and David has to clean up his mess. It's about the sin of a king and another king who has to deal with the fallout. This time though, this time, we don't get to know exactly why, explicitly why God is angry. All we know is that he is. And he's going to make David not clean up the mess, but add to it. David is called to do something. But instead of fixing it, he's incited to make one uh, mess of his own, you could say. Instead of punishing Israel directly, the text says that God chose to incite David against them, meaning he encouraged them or persuaded, he encouraged him or urged him or persuaded him to do this, to go number Israel and Judah to take a census. Now, right away, there are some questions, at least some questions that I have, and maybe you do too. And this is the thing about the Bible. It doesn't always answer our questions. It just, it just tells us what God wants us to know. But here are my questions. I want to know why God is angry in the first place. Spoiler alert, we're never told. Okay, it's not in anywhere else in the Bible. There's no cross-reference we can go to. He just is. Why does God choose to incite David against them? We don't know exactly why he chooses to do this either. Or how about this? How can God incite a person to do something that's wrong? And this we can answer. In James 1 the book of James chapter one, verse 13, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. 
God never directly tempts anybody to sin. He allows temptation for sure. He is sovereign over everything that happens, but God is not the direct agent of temptation ever. Now keep this in mind as we turn to 1 Chronicles. Go to 1 Chronicles with me, 1 Chronicles 21. And it's just a couple books over. Okay, so 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, then 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21. The thing about 1 Chronicles is that it retells a lot of the same stories that we have in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings for that matter. Um, there's a reason for this. You'll get there when you get into your Bible reading plan. Hopefully you're still doing it by August. We'll get into the books of Chronicles. There, You can ask me about it when you get there. Okay, You might want to know why it's so similar. There's a reason for it. But 1 Chronicles tells this same story that we have at the end of 2 Samuel. It's not in the same place, and it's told slightly differently from a different perspective. Look at verse 1. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Um, notice anything different about 1 Chronicles 21? Satan is the one who stood against Israel and incited David. So what's going on? Is this some sort of error, a contradiction in the text? Is it Satan or is it God? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is both. And this answer, I think, is explained the best in the book of Job. Now, I won't make you turn there for the sake of time. Let me just summarize for you what I mean. If you know the book of Job... It might be the craziest book in the Bible, but Job, we're given a look behind the curtain of heaven, you could say. Okay, we're kind of allowed to see something we're not normally allowed to see. We're allowed to look into realms, spiritual realms that are normally off limits to humans. And what we see at the beginning of the book of My servant Job, he's so blameless. He's the best guy on earth. And Satan tells God, he says, the only reason that he's the best guy on earth, the only reason why he's so faithful to you is because you bless him so much. He says, let me take care of Job a little bit. Let me mess up his life a little bit. And then you'll see that he'll curse you to his face. And I'm summarizing it, but that's basically what goes down. And God says, go ahead and do it. But the interesting thing about this exchange, one of the many interesting things is that Satan he can't just touch Job. He has to ask God for permission. We see the power dynamic at play. Even Satan himself can do nothing that he wants to do apart from God allowing him to do it. It's like uh, what Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said. He said, even the devil is God's devil. And what he meant by that was God is sovereign over everything. Nothing can happen apart from his will and his permission and his command. So who incited David? Directly, it was Satan. That's what First Chronicles tells us. But ultimately, it was God. God was in control of this entire thing that's going on in 2 Samuel 24. Now, there's more to unpack here. But back to our passage, you could turn there. Back to our passage. We needed to do a little bit of that legwork first. Okay, now 2 Samuel 24. Okay, let's look at the text again with 
slightly more knowledge. God is angry at Israel. His anger is kindled against Israel. And God, through Satan, incites David to number the people. But there are still some questions we have. What's wrong with numbering the people? And we haven't read the whole text yet, but God punishes David for doing this. Okay, so it is clearly sinful. But what's wrong with taking a census? It doesn't seem like it's the worst thing ever. And wait, even if Satan is the one who directly incited David, the text here in 2 Samuel says that God did incite him. How does this work? I still don't get it. Well, let's look at what David did first, and it'll start to get clearer. Verse 2. So the king, that's David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's top to bottom, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. But why does my Lord, the king delight in this thing? Okay, so David sends Joab and Joab pushes back. He knows something's wrong. What is it? Keep reading verse four. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aroer and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and onto Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan, they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Okay, there's a lot here, but what did you notice? Well, who did David ask to do this? He asked Joab and the commanders of the army. And they went, and it took them almost a year to do this. It took a long time. And they came back, and they gave the totals. But notice how they gave the totals. What does it say? Not just 800,000 people, 800,000 valiant men who drew the what? Who drew the sword. And then 500,000 in Judah. This is not a census of the total number of people in Israel. This is a census of who can fight in the army. It's a military census. And now, hopefully, it's starting to make a little bit more sense. I mean, think about it. How would Satan incite David? How would this look? How does Satan normally tempt people? Does he show up in your room with a pitchfork and say, how about a little sin? Doesn't that sound good? Satan works in much more wily and clever ways. How would Satan incite David to do something like this? He would maybe raise up an enemy another nation, maybe a Philistine coalition or a new nation that they hadn't heard of before, people who would test Israel's strength and might. This is the subtext here. A military threat arose, a new enemy, and the temptation was for David. In dealing with this, will I trust in myself and in my strength and in Israel's numbers, or will I trust in God? Anyway, doesn't it say in verse 1 that God said to him, go number Israel and Judah? It does. Yes, it does. But taking a census in of itself isn't sin. So what is it? Listen to Exodus 30. Exodus 30, verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, this is in the law. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, 
Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. And then a little further down in verse 16, it says in Exodus 30, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your life. Now there's a lot in here, but basically what it's saying is when you do take a census, there's a certain way that you should do it. You must take an offering. There's an atonement tax, you could say. And basically what it was all about was reminding the people of Israel that every life belongs to God. These people don't belong to you. Your your life doesn't even belong to yourself. Every life belongs to God. You're supposed to bring the people to remembrance before the Lord. So God called and incited David to take a census. But the choice wasn't take a census or not. The choice was take a census in the right way. Or not? And what does David do? Is there any mention of bringing the people before the Lord? Is there any mention of an atonement tax, of an offering? God gave David a choice. And in his sovereignty, he knew that David would choose wrong. This would be Israel's punishment. We'll get there in a minute. But God did not incite David to sin. God gave him a choice. Now, Satan, on the other hand, directly did probably have no qualms with trying to get David to stumble here. So the question is, how did David stumble? What was wrong with David's census? How did he choose wrong? It wasn't the counting. That's not sinful if you do it the right way. It wasn't the counting. It was the heart behind it. It has to be. And look at what David said again. What did he say to Joab? He said that I, that I may know the number I want to know how many people I got. I want to know how strong I am. The focus is on me. It's not about the Lord at all. David just wanted to see what he was working with. Instead of looking to God and trusting in him alone, as he usually did, as he's always done through these books. So this time, for some reason, David decides to trust in his own might. And this is the story that 2 Samuel decides to leave us with. So many, David's messed up a lot, okay? But not in this way. The last story is the one time that David trusted in himself for the victory. You know, I read a story once. uh, A man received a promotion to become the vice president of his company. And it went to his head, okay? He got really prideful about it. And his wife noticed that he was always subtly trying to drop that fact into every conversation. You know, I got promoted to VP, Or being a VP is kind of tough, you know, like I'm pretty tired these days because, you know, I'm a vice president and there's a lot of responsibility on me. And finally, one day she had had it with his bragging and she said, enough. Okay, I got to talk to you. And she said, look, you know, I'm happy for you that you're the vice president of the company now, but it's not that big of a deal. Okay, like every company has like 50 vice presidents. Okay, you're not that big of a deal. Chill out, humble yourself. She said, even at the supermarket, I bet you there's a vice president of peace. And he said, jealous much? You're just mad because I'm a super important vice president. And to prove his point, he called the supermarket. And he's like, can I speak to the vice president of peace, please? Like, yeah, right, there's no vice president of peace. And the person on the other end said, Vice president of fresh or frozen. And that's how it goes. David let his own strength get to his head. 
And if you read these texts, you can kind of see why. Right? We talked about his mighty men. We talked about all the battles that they won. They were undefeated against the Philistines during his tenure. David let his own strength get to his head. He numbered them. He wanted to see how strong. Over a million men who can fight. Enemies should tremble at the name of Israel and of David. We can't be conquered. And you guys know how this is, right? If you're ever doing anything where you can check like the stats of something, right? Like I remember we used to have this blog thing called Zanga. Millennials used to have this and we would check how many comments and we would get these uh, e-props and we would check all the time how many we got. We want to see how we're doing. The truth is David was never the strength of Israel. And a million men, it's not that big of a deal in God's eyes. In 2 Kings 19, we see the angel of the Lord by himself kill 185,000 Assyrian warriors. That was the superpower in the world at the time. See, look, okay, what made David a better king than Saul? This is a big part of 1 Samuel. What made him a better king than Saul was that he trusted in God instead of himself. We made this point again and again and again, but what we see here is that he didn't always. And in fact, it was when he was at his strongest that he was ironically at his most vulnerable. First Corinthians 10, 10, 12 says, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is one of the greatest dangers to the follower of God. Why? Because It's one of the greatest lies. Our strength was never in us or in ourselves. And for the Christian, we should know this. We're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, to live by trust in him. The reality is we're no one without God. It's just when we're doing good. That's when we're tempted to think it was all me. Haven't struggled with that sin in a while. You know how this is. I think I conquered that sin. It's a dangerous place to be when you think that you've conquered it or that you've handled it or that it's easy for you now. Satan prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And the self-sufficient person is easy pickings for him. And remember, Joab asked David, why do you delight in this? Okay, so David was self-sufficient. Joab asked David, why do, you, why do you delight in this? There's another element here. There's something that feels good about exalting in your own strength, in your own security, in your own greatness. But take heed lest you fall into self-aggrandizement, which really is just idolatry. David was glorying in his strength. Glory should belong to God alone. And the the temptation will always be to think more of yourself and less of God. It's at the center of so many heresies and false teachings. So many false teachers, what they do to get you is they puff you up. A lot of Christians, they don't know about this. They don't get this. They're not as spiritual. They're not as committed. They're not as serious as you are. And we love that. We love it. Satan will even twist good things and make them sinful. I mean, how many people get into Reformed theology, which I believe and think is good? How many of us get into it, and then we become the most prideful person on the planet, thinking that everyone else is wrong and a heretic? I preach to myself. But you could see how this is a danger. And make no mistake, God cares a lot about pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
As we read this text, think about this in your mind. Think about Proverbs 16, 18 and think, what did God say? Pride goes before destruction. We've seen a lot of sin in David's life, but we haven't seen pride like this until this instance. And there are going to be consequences, namely destruction. And this leads to the second point, the condemnation, the condemnation, which is about the character of God. Look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So, okay, David, I love David, right? This is what makes David so great in a lot of ways. When he sins, he repents, right? Sin seven times, repent eight times. David is convicted. David confesses as he did after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he asked God to take away his iniquity. Verse 11, And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three years before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Last time David confessed and repented and God said, your sin is put away. You shall not die. He offered forgiveness and there were consequences, but we understood those consequences. But here Gad says, here's your judgment. You got three options and each one seems devastating in its own way. Three years of famine, three months on being on the run from enemies, or three days of pestilence. Any way you cut it, people are going to die. It's going to be serious. It's going to be bad. And again, we have questions. Why should everybody suffer for David's sins? Isn't this a little bit severe? Okay, David, he counted people. He was prideful, but famine, foes, or plague sounds a bit much. But what did God say? Exodus 34. Turn, turn with me to Exodus 34. We, we got to go here. Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. The context here is that Moses wanted to see God. Do you remember this? He said, God, show me your glory. I want to know who you are. And God does reveal to him who he is. Exodus 34. This is what God says. Look at verse 6. Actually, we can start in verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we love that. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is slow to anger, and we focus on that, and we should. But what is the implication of God being slow to anger? That he does sometimes get angry. We saw it in verse 1 of our text. The Lord's anger was kindled. When God reveals his character to Moses, he reveals his compassion and his grace. He reveals his love and his faithfulness. 
But he doesn't just reveal these things. He reveals that he has anger against sin, that he is just, that he punishes the guilty. See, when we talk about God, when we actually look at what the Bible says, we have to talk about who he is in his entirety, including his anger and his wrath. Just like when you talk about a lion, it would be silly if you omitted that he has really sharp teeth. It would be deathly inaccurate even. We can't just pick and choose the parts we want to talk about. The Bible is clear that God is angry against sin. And this is a hard thing to talk about in church. This is a hard thing to talk about, the difficult doctrine of the wrath of God. But before you react one way or the other, let me ask you, have you ever gotten angry because you heard about something despicable that someone did? Not even against you, okay? Remove the personal element from it, okay, entirely. When you heard about something some stranger did to a different stranger, I'm sure you read or you watched the news sometimes. I know you've had to learn about history. Okay, we understand how this works. The kind of atrocities that human beings are capable of, it's almost unbelievable. We don't even want to believe it. I feel like lately I've been seeing more online that there are more Holocaust deniers out there. But I feel like the reason why is because they, they think it just couldn't happen. It's impo- How could it ever happen? People wouldn't do that. Unfortunately, People would do that, and they have done such things. People have done horrific things in this world. And we would cry out at the injustice of it all if there was no retribution for those who commit the worst horrors with zero remorse. But there is retribution, the Bible says. There is justice. It's called the wrath of God. So in one sense, the doctrine of the wrath of God is actually comforting. People can't get away with it. Hitler can't just end his own life and escape the consequences of his actions. God is waiting. God holds all accountable. In fact, it's actually reassuring when we think about all the evil in this world. He doesn't leave the guilty. He doesn't leave the mass murderer. He doesn't leave the rapist unpunished. But here's the uncomfortable question, and this is why it's a difficult doctrine. What about the guy picking up stones or picking up sticks, excuse me, on the Sabbath? Wouldn't exactly call him, you know, like a ancient Hitler. What about Ananias and Sapphira lying to Peter about how much they gave? Remember I said they still gave. They didn't steal anything. They just lied. And we lie sometimes too, right? I mean, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. But there, there you have it. We lie sometimes too. So it's not that big of a deal. The most uncomfortable part of the uncomfortable question is, well, what about us? Because sometimes I do things like that. I picked up sticks yesterday. Now, you can pick up sticks, okay? There's a theological answer to that. You can do it, okay? Don't get uncomfortable about that. But the doctrine of the wrath of God makes sense when we think about people we define as bad. Do you understand this? Who commit sins that seem to us as being evil or repulsive or just bad. And it doesn't make sense. It's even repulsive to some of us when we think about people we define as good who commit sins that aren't that big of a deal in our eyes. When we make ourselves the standard, we're always going to have this problem. We're going to have a problem with the wrath of God because some people will seem like they don't deserve it and some will seem like they do. 
And what's going to happen is we're going to start judging and condemning some very harshly and we'll want to let others slide. In fact, this problem is illustrated in the old play, The Crucible. Do you remember this play? It takes place during the Salem witch trials. And there's this reverend who's on a literal witch hunt and he's calling all these people witches and stuff. And not saying that witchcraft is not condemned in the Bible or not a bad thing, but he is filled with corruption and selfishness and he's not a good guy. And that blindness is the greatest killer. And this exists today. See, God doesn't see as man sees. He doesn't zero in on only some sins or some evils or whatever happens to be on his radar. Everything is on his radar. He sees it all and he is totally 100% fair and just. He knows our selfishness and corruption. He knows how we've hurt others with our words and with our actions. He knows how we failed our, our children. He knows how we've been bad examples, how we've gotten unreasonably angry. He knows how we fail to love our neighbors, our enemies, the orphan and the widow among us, which is what pure religion is all about according to the scripture and it makes him angry as it should there's wrath for those who hurt others there's wrath for those who break god's law there's wrath for those who sin and that is bad news for all of us christians should be the most humble people on earth because we know hopefully better than anyone that we deserve wrath We've sinned against God. Look, we end the books of Samuel and the story of David's kingdom with a sobering reminder of just who we are dealing with. We're dealing with the God who doesn't just let things slide. The King of Kings who will not be mocked. And David knows who God is. And this is why he does what he does. Look at how he responds to all of this. Then David said to God, or Gad, excuse me, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 people die for David's sin and their sins. Notice, though, David doesn't argue about the fairness of this at all. And then notice that David chooses pestilence because of a certain reason. It's because he wants to fall into the hand of the Lord, whose mercy is great, not into the hand of man. See, the reason David doesn't argue with God's punishment is because he knows God. And the reason he chooses the punishment he chooses is because he knows God. And he knows that while God does uh, does indeed have wrath against sin, that he is not a tame God, that he is also at the same time overflowing with mercy and with grace. He knows God's character and he knows that any day of the week, it's better to trust God than any person on earth. And the truth is everyone who knows God knows this. If you know God, then you know what you deserve. You know that you're a sinner and that you deserve wrath. You don't deserve life. You deserve death. The wages of sin is death. You know this. You know God is holy. You know he is righteous and just. But at the same time, if you know God, then you know that there is one person in all of existence who will forgive sin, who will justify the sinner. Habakkuk knew God. Habakkuk, one of my favorite books in the Bible, we preached it before. This is what Habakkuk prayed 
when Israel was getting judged. He prayed in chapter 3, one of my favorite verses. He said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. And then listen to this. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. It's important to know God. It's important to know your theology, to study. And yes, there can be a danger in just studying for studying's sake, as if God was another philosophical subject to be puffed up with knowledge without living it out. But there's also a danger in dismissing theology as just impractical, heady stuff. Look, at the end of the day, it's about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with him. There's nothing more important than that. And a huge part of that is just listening to what he said about himself. He shared so much. There's nothing that at the end of the day will make more of a practical difference in how you live than knowing God. If you really know his holiness, it'll change the way you make decisions. You won't just do little sins because it's no big deal. If you really know his love, you'll interact with people differently. You'll be more confident, honestly. You won't need them to love you in the same way. And you'll be free to love them in return. If you really know his sovereignty, that's the first step in dealing with anxiety. And anxiety is such a big problem among people these days. You need to know God. And a huge part of knowing God is actually paying attention when he shares about himself. So read, study, meditate, and then live. And then live. Theology and application is not either or, either or, it's both and. David knows God. It's why he doesn't argue. And it's why he still has hope. David knows God. The question is, do you? Look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. So God relents right before the angel of the Lord destroys Jerusalem. And then verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned. And I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And all the while, David is there and he wants to take the blame on himself. I love this. David, the shepherd boy who became king, shepherd of God's people. He says, what have these sheep done? It says so much about how he views his role as king of Israel. He says, let your hand be against me. Now, We're never told why, but we know that God is already angry against Israel for their sins that they have committed. Could have been the willingness of the people to join up with Absalom or maybe in Sheba's rebellion. We don't know for sure, but there is something that they have done. They're not only dying for David's sins. So the way God punished them was through the sin sin of David. And we see all these layers of how God is working in this text. God's plan being accomplished through human means, through nations, through kings, etc., through Satan even. The sheep of sin, that's part of the answer. But also at the same time, David is implicated. David is the one who, as their king, made a terrible choice in numbering the people. But here we see the heart of David, even though he's guilty, 
He says, let your hand be against me. And what he's saying is, if I could, I would die for them. But he can't. David is not a suitable substitute. This is him bearing his own sin here, the own consequences of his own actions. It's all related. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now this leads to the third and final point. The story could have ended here, but it doesn't. And there's a lot of detail in this last part of the passage. And I promise there's a payoff. Third point, the cost. There's always a cost. We pay a price for the sins we commit. And there's a price to be paid for salvation even. Verse 18. Now listen as I read to verse 21. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Araunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Araunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Okay, so God actually tells David what to do to stop the plague. Build an altar at this specific place. Go to Arauna's house. Buy stuff from him. Now, we don't actually know for sure who he is. We just know that he's a Jebusite. And Jerusalem, you got to understand, it's the, it, David made it the capital city. He put it on the map, so to speak. But Jerusalem was a city even before Israel showed up. It was a Canaanite city. There were kings in, in uh, Jerusalem before. Uh, even Melchizedek was king of Salem, same area. Now, they used to call it... Uh, Jebus, or I'm not saying it the right way. It sounds like I'm saying Jesus, but I can't pronounce it right. Uh, But the original inhabitants were called Jebusites. Okay, so this is a guy who's been around. His family's been around for a long time, okay, in Jerusalem. He's owned this place for a long time, probably even before David was born. His family has owned it. And yet God says, go to this specific guy and buy this land and build an altar. Verse 22. Then Arana said to David, let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord, your God, accept you. He says, don't even buy it, dude. I'll give it to you for free. You're the king. I want to give it to you. Verse 24. But the king said to Arana, no but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord, uh, to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. End text. What stopped the plague? God's mercy. But what stopped the plague? David's sacrifices. It's not either or, it's both and. Because who told David to buy the threshing floor and then build the altar and then offer the sacrifices? God himself. Now go back to verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Why would he do this? God uses means to work out his ends. It was all to get to this point where David would buy this threshing floor and build an altar and offer a sacrifice that cost him to stop this plague. 
God even uses Satan's own actions, 1 Chronicles 21, to incite David to get to this point. And remember, too, God was angry at Israel already for unnamed sin. What does God do? He punishes the guilty. But then we saw him relent. How could he do this? This is the question of questions that hangs over the entire Old Testament. How can God be just and merciful? Which is it? Is he just sometimes merciful, sometimes just, sometimes wrathful, sometimes sometimes loving? Like, how do we know what side of the bed he woke up on? What is it? We don't get the answer until much later. But we get maybe the biggest hint in the entire Old Testament as to the answer right here in 2 Samuel 24. David is told to build an altar that costs him something on around us threshing floor. Why at this place? Why this thing? Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 3. 2 Chronicles 3. This is later on in time. This is when Solomon, David's son, is now king. But look what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, Ornan was just another name for Arauna, just to be clear. But what is it saying here in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1? This verse is giving us the overwhelming significance of 2 Samuel 24 and of the threshing floor that Arauna owned and the altar that David built. See, David, he pled for mercy, knowing that God is merciful. And God responded with a command. And do you know what he told him to do? He said, build an altar where the future temple is going to be. The temple was built at that exact place. David bought it at that time. The temple is where atonement is going to be made. The temple is where God's presence is going to reside. The temple is where God is going to meet with his people. And not just that. Notice it says another name for this area. It says on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Do you know what Mount Moriah is? Have you heard this name before? Way before this, many years before, God made a promise to a man named Abraham that he would bless him, that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give him a land, and that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The only problem was Abraham had no children. And he believed in the promise, but as he got older and older, and as he got into his 90s, and then he turned 100, the promise seemed pretty far-fetched. I mean, the Apostle Paul says in Romans that his body was as good as dead. Kind of messed up to say about a person that you don't even know. But when he was old, and his wife was old, and it was physically impossible to have children, God gave them a son, and his name was Isaac. Promise fulfilled. Through Isaac... Would the promise be passed? Through this family, would all the nations be blessed? Except Genesis 22. You don't have to turn there. Let me just summarize it for you. God speaks to Abraham and he says, take your son, your only son, the son of promise, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. A human sacrifice. Something God never, ever 
commanded. He, he hated human sacrifice. It was a pagan thing. It was an evil thing. So it was a strange command. Didn't seem like God at all. Abraham, though he listens and he obeys, though he doesn't understand, he goes and he knows that Isaac is the child of promise, a miracle baby. He doesn't know how God's going to work this out, but he trusts and he goes and he goes up the mountain and Isaac's asking him, where's the animal for the sacrifice? Abraham just says, just trust, you know, God will provide. Don't worry about it. Let's get up there. And when they get to the top of Mount Moriah at the exact same place David is right now in our text, he ties up Isaac and is about to plunge the knife right into him, slaughtering him as a sacrifice for God. When the angel of the Lord, who is God himself, stops him. He says, stop, don't do it. And Abraham looks and he sees a ram nearby caught in a thicket and he offers the ram instead. And someday, Lord willing, we'll preach this passage and we'll talk about all that's in this text. But just hear this one thing. At the end of this story, at the end of this whole ordeal, Abraham decides to call this place, Mount Moriah. He decides to call it Genesis twenty-two fourteen. the Lord will provide. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount, the Lord, it shall be provided. The same place that Arauna had a threshing floor, the same place that David goes to and he buys because he's not going to just offer something that costs him nothing. And he offers sacrifice to the Lord, burnt offerings, peace offerings, and the plague is averted. The Lord will provide. This is how second Samuel ends. This is how the story of the kingdom of David ends. With a king whose spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. With a chosen one offering sacrifices to God for mercy in the midst of wrath. With a man who is willing to pay the cost, whatever the cost is. All on the mount called, the Lord will provide. Do you see it? All these stories, David and Abraham, they all weave together into one big narrative of scripture where what Satan meant for evil, even in the garden, God is redeeming for good. God's story, uh, David's story, Abraham's story, they're all part of God's story. And while David's story is over, God's story isn't. And we know the story. Christian here, you know the story. Even if you're not a Christian, you know the story of a king who offers up his body and his spirit as the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek who sacrifices for mercy in the midst of wrath, of a man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who is willing to pay the cost for redemption and forgiveness so that God might be the just and justifier of those who are sinful. Jesus walked on that very temple mount. And do you remember what he said? He said, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. The Lord provided. It was David's son, yes, and more. It was God's son himself. And this is the gospel. This is what the whole Bible is about. This is what First and Second Samuel are about. It's why we call Second Samuel king of kings. Because David is the king at his best, he shows us a glimpse maybe of what the future king, the greatest king will be like. But at his worst, in his second Samuel 24 worst, in his David and Bathsheba worst, he points us to our need for his king. 
the king who can do what he couldn't do, whose spirit is willing and his flesh is enough. This is the gospel. God himself in his great mercy poured out his wrath upon his own son so that those who look to Jesus for salvation can be forgiven fully and free by faith. That's what we believe. That's what makes us Christian. We'll close here. Dorian Gray, he made his choice after a conversation with Lord Henry Wotton, an arrogant and hedonistic aristocrat. Wotton said, the gods give us everything, but they take it back. They do it very slowly so we don't notice. But he couldn't be more wrong. One, there's only one God. But two, God doesn't take. Okay, God doesn't take. He only gives. He gives us what we deserve by default, the wages of our sin, which is death and an eternity in hell. But that's not all. The good news that David points us to is that Jesus is uh, the salvation that we need and that God wants to give us more than what we deserve. That what he offers us is more than what we deserve. Mercy, grace, his own son. See, the thing is, at the end of Dorian Gray, faced with the horrific things he's done, Gray has a change of heart. And he's still young and beautiful, but the consequences of his actions start to press in on him. You can't just be killing people and have no consequences. So Gray tries to destroy the picture. But in doing so, he ends up destroying himself. He stabs the portrait with a knife. But later he is found with a stab wound in himself, dead. And the lesson is simple. You can't run from your sins, not forever at least. And death awaits each and every one of us, even great men like David, larger than life figures. And you can't save yourself. So where are you going to turn? Second Samuel 24 leads us exactly to that place. There is a place. It's called the Lord will provide. And there is a person, the son of David, Jesus Christ. And David ends his story by pointing us to both. So we'll finish the sermon and the series by reading David's most famous word, Psalm 23. And I love this too. We don't know when he wrote it. Did he write it when he was a young shepherd boy before all the drama? Or did he write it after Bathsheba and Uriah and Absalom and all these things? Either way, it's just as true. Maybe it's even truer, you could say, after all that he went through. But this is what he said. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's it. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would use your word, your holy and inspired word to point us to Christ. And God, I pray that every single person in this room God, I pray that there wouldn't be one person, God, who would walk away not knowing him. God, you have given us so much more than what we deserve. I just pray that you would lead us there. I pray that you would help us, that you would give us the faith that we need to grasp onto Christ. 
and never let go. God, we're thankful for the things that you've taught us. We're thankful for your word. God, I pray that we would not squander all that you have revealed in it. So God, we look to you. We pray that you would help us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.